The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Aaron's Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. The fact that it's still so hard to talk about mental health in the context of work isn't so much a secret. It's fighting against a work culture decades, if not longer, in the making. That culture includes a lot of stereotypes about what makes a strong leader, someone direct, forceful, unemotional, traits that are also stereotypically associated with men. Later in the show, we'll hear from listener Darshan Patel, a regional leader of a multinational company. He's currently based in Mexico, working for an India-based company, and reached out to me to share his story of depression and bipolar and professional success. First, though, I'm joined by Lenny Mendonca, who spent the majority of his professional career at McKinsey, eventually becoming a senior partner and consultant. Lenny retired from the company in 2014. Then he served as chief economic and business advisor to California Governor Gavin Newsom. And it was Lenny's resignation from that role that caught my attention. Because he resigned using one of those cliche phrases about leaving to spend more time with his family and then went quickly public about his struggle with anxiety and depression. Here's my conversation with Lenny. A question I ask a lot of my guests is to think back to the roots of what drove them to achieve, right? I mean, what was your path to sort of getting to the place where you would get an offer from a firm like McKinsey? I was one of those kids, um, so um, school was relatively easy for me. I did spend a lot of time doing things outside of the classroom, so I was an athlete in high school. And What sport did you play? Baseball. Oh, okay. I was a left-handed junk ball pitcher, which works well in high school, but not very well after that. <laughs> and then I was a writer, edited the newspaper, and also student body president as I was at Harvard. So I was involved in a lot of extracurricular activity, particularly around government things. Yeah, that's funny. I was too. I was student body president and I was a an athlete, a scholar athlete, as they called them back then. Did you feel like your parents put pressure on you or did it mostly come from yourself? They didn't put pressure on me. They encouraged it. Yeah. And I was first person in my family to go to college from a small town in central California where my parents had a dairy farm. And so they were encouraging and supportive and really helpful. And uh, if anything, they were very active in their communities. My father in the local fire protection, my mother in in the church, and they were just, that's kind of put into me. That's what you do. You do your job and you also help those around you. So they were absolutely not putting pressure, but they were role modeling and encouraging. So you're here today because I was preparing actually to talk to some of your colleagues at McKinsey and I I was searching about McKinsey and mental health and your name popped up. I want you to talk us through your depression 
as much as you want to share. I know this is something that you make a point of talking about, and I really appreciate that. You became really clinically depressed a few years ago. What happened? So I had taken a uh, U-turn a little bit of what I was doing. I agreed to join Governor Newsom in California on his senior team as his economic and business advisor. And I was totally loving it. It was other than spending a hundred nights in a year in a hotel again, <laughs> it was, um, you know, really exciting and interesting and fun. And then COVID hit mm. and, you know, we were right in the middle of it. California was one of the first places where there was substantial effects, including early on trying to figure out how to navigate it and put in place business restrictions and getting people to stay home and those kinds of things. And so that was what the context of what was going on. Hmm. And I was uh, obviously in the middle of that working too hard and uh, not sleeping and, you know, carrying the weight of that on me. Cause I felt like we were, and especially in the early days in a, a truly unknown global disaster that I wasn't sure how we were going to get out of it. Hmm. And, you know, the way I dealt with that was the way I dealt with a lot of other things, which is just dive deep into it and, try and figure it out and try and figure out what we should do about it. And I, I never had any challenges with anxiety or depression before. Mm. And so I didn't know what was going on and wasn't sleeping very much and not eating very much. And, you know, I didn't recognize it, but people around me did recognize that it, something was going on. And then it just hit me first with the anxiety attack that put me in an overnight stay in a hospital. And then I tried to go back and then a couple of weeks later, ended up just having to say, I can't do this and got admitted into the hospital again, that time for depression. So into a psychiatric facility? Yes. I uh, fortunately had my wife and a good friend and family around who said, you can't do this and we're going to, you're either going to go voluntarily or we're going to involuntarily take you to Stanford and they did, and they gave me the choice of being either voluntarily admitted or involuntarily admitted to the psychiatric ward for a treatment, which I said, well, that sounds like I'm going to get admitted, so I might as well volunteer. And uh, I spent several days there in terrific treatment. I would never, ever want to do it again, um, but I was fortunate to have a combination of family and friends who paid attention. I had great health insurance from my retirement and mm -hmm. then also had access to Stanford. I got the last bed in the, uh, in fact, it was in the involuntary ward um, because that was the only bed that was available. But I was fortunate enough to be able to, to get in and get great treatment. Because that was the time that people were waiting for days and and even weeks sometimes in emergency rooms, right? Waiting to get admitted. Yes, it was right at the beginning of COVID and they were still, they couldn't do a lot of what they wanted to do before. And so there were single occupancy rooms. And so that cut the capacity in half mm. at least. And so I just was, uh, was lucky. I want to go back to the, I guess it was a panic anxiety attack that sent you to the ER. It's interesting when I talk to men that their first experience with that level of anxiety, everyone assumes they're having a heart attack or something yes. like that, right? They take it very medically. Can you tell us about that experience? Like, how did it come on and what did it feel like? So I was up early on a weekend doing work and catching up in my office, which is where I am now at home. And I thought I was having a heart attack. Mm. And 
called my wife and she came down and called one of our close friends who's a neighbor who's a has medical background and came in and said nope you're it's an anxiety attack and called 911 and and they uh they picked me up it was having trouble breathing and just something was broken and i didn't if it was in my heart it was something else so it was uh when the medical folks got here the first thing they did is knew what it was and gave me some stuff to relax a little bit and that helped a lot but yeah. um, no it was very uncomfortable and this was your first time with that level of anxiety uh, with at all at all that's amazing and so you got over that attack and then did you just plunge yourself right away back into work at the same level so my wife called the folks i was working with and they said you should cut back for a little bit and so i tried to do it part-time mm-hmm. and pull take some things off of my plate we were working remotely then so i could do it from home and so i was trying to keep up with things um doing it that way for a couple of weeks i took a couple of days off but you know it was on a weekend so it was back on tuesday i think wow and then the depression set in and what did that feel like did it feel different you know it wasn't a acute episode it was more a continual decline and it was, you know, in retrospecting, it was clearly something going on in my, my body because I wasn't eating and I'd lost a lot of weight and mm. was, um, you know, didn't have any energy, and, but I wasn't sleeping. So I'd just get up and try and do stuff. And in my head, everything, when I go down, you know, I'm a pretty analytic person, but every decision tree I went down had a bad outcome on everything. And so <sighs> something wasn't right. But, you know, when you're in that environment, that's what you see and what you think. So in retrospect, it's totally irrational. But at the time, it was like, of course, that's going to happen. The world's going to end. You know, that kind of stuff. Everything is dark. Yep. How did this experience change how you see yourself? Yeah, I mean, I'm not someone who either talks about myself or certainly talks about feelings and frailties um, like this. And, you know, it took me quite a while to get back on my feet. And mostly it was through time away and getting better sleep and exercise and getting back in balance. But after a little while, I I felt perfectly fine again. And when I left, I resigned and told the chief of staff and they sent out, governor sent out a a, a press release on Friday afternoon that I was going to resign to spend more time with my family and locally. And, uh. you know, so for any of us in business, we know that means you <laughs> either had a massive disagreement and quit before you could fire you or you got fired. <laughs> and since I wasn't in any position to tell anybody, including my team, nobody knew what had happened. And so it was a pretty awkward time. And, and then on top of that, I went to the hospital the next day and couldn't talk to anybody. And so it was a several weeks before I started telling even close friends what had happened. And as part of that, my kids and my wife encouraged me to write something, which I would send to people before I called them in part. So I didn't have to go through all the detail and they knew what I was calling about. And some of them encouraged me to edit it and publish it, which I did. And so once you do that, you're kind of out there. And the reason that they encouraged me to do it, which I appreciate, was more for my own catharsis and to be able to feel like something other than just a miserable experience came out of this. And so now what's changed me is I talk about this whenever anybody asks me. Hmm. I don't start with it or volunteer it necessarily unless it's an obvious part of the conversation. But part of what I 
appreciated through my experience was how privileged and lucky I was to have it treated so quickly and effectively and how unusual that is despite how pervasive the topic is. And so I just wanted to help encourage the destigmatization first and foremost of the topic. And then also to the extent I could think about what do we do about it so that this doesn't become even worse. And so what's changed is I'm, you know, I get invitations to speak quite a bit and at least half of them now are are on this topic. Wow. I want to talk about what needs to change. It's also my observation recently, someone who's been trying to access psychiatric services that if you aren't privileged and if you don't have cash on hand, the system is absolutely broken in America. And it's really upsetting. But I want to just talk about why is it cathartic to talk about this? And what effect do you think it has for you and who you are to talk about it? Well, first of all, you know, I'm I'm a believer that if you tell one person something, you may be able to keep it between yourselves. But if you tell two or three people, you might as well be on the internet. <laughs> Forget and it. So the, the fact that, you know, I told people and I was a, at least for a while a public figure, people were going to know about it. And so it wasn't something that I, even if I wanted to, could could not talk about. And I guess the cathartic part of what is that two things. One, if if people were going to be talking about it and me, I'd rather have it open than behind my back. Mm-hmm. And secondly, I really had a strong feeling that, you know, it happened to me. You know, I also in the past broke my leg and went to the hospital and was out of commission for six months. And you talk to people and they see a cast on your leg and you talk about it. Totally. But if it's a mental health challenge, it's not as visible and people don't talk about it. And you know, to me, it's just the same thing. It's a health issue. You can get through it with the right care. And we need to have the ability to both talk about it and treat it in the same way we do any other issue. And if we don't, it's a huge problem. And so the cathartic part, it was both personal to feel that way, but also to feel like maybe there was some possibility that I could be helping other people by talking about it. Do you think if, if something like this had happened when you were earlier in your career or in the middle of your career, you would have felt differently about it and especially about sharing it? The honest answer is I don't know, Yeah, but probably, and that's part of the problem. You know, one of the, in addition to having the privilege of family and friends close and good health coverage and access to care, you know, I'm privileged enough to be at a point in my life where I don't really care. So, you know, it's easier for me to talk about it when there's not as much actual or perceived downside to it. And so if anything, the experience of talking about it has convinced me even more that we need to talk about it because, you know, I first spoke about this in a, an article that I wrote in Cal Matters, which is a widely read nonprofit mm-hmm. that covers California politics. And I have written probably a hundred op-eds in my life. This one had an order of magnitude more response than anything I've ever written. And I had several dozen people reach and they still do reach out to me and want to talk and or send me long notes with their own stories. Um, Often, I'm sure you get this too, given what you do, (laughs) of their own or a family member or friend's experience. And a lot of them were not pleasant stories. And so those were difficult, but important to hear. But in addition, I had, you know, several dozen people reach out to me and say, because of what they read and because what I'd said, they or a a friend or family member 
got help. It's interesting because I feel as someone who tries to get people to talk about their experiences all the time, because it is so powerful, that there's still a bit of a stigma for people who are in corporate settings. I find that entrepreneurs tend to be much more open unless they're entrepreneurs who are seeking outside capital, and then it might be a little bit tougher. I find that people who have transitioned out of a role, you know, people like you, people who've like done it, they've they've done their thing and they don't care what people think, they'll talk about it. But I feel there's a big gap of people who are in the prime of their sort of climbing years to talk about their mental health challenges. And I have no idea how to change that. No, I I definitely think that's true. Um, you know, my experience with talking about this is that it's much more common to talk about it and actually get support in some sectors, particularly in sports and in the entertainment world. It's a common conversation. And there are a lot of, you know, if you're an athlete, you're having to be at peak mental performance, not just physical performance. Right. You'll see their psychologist in the box at tennis or where whoever exactly. it's part of their team. Yeah. And, you know, several high profile folks uh, talk about it. And, you know, so that's a more common conversation. But in the business world, especially in the high pressure professions, it's not. And so part of what I get asked to do a lot of time is to speak to business groups and be the prop that allows people to talk about it. <laughs> and that's fine. And I just think the, you know, this was bad before. It's worse post-COVID. And, you know, I, I'm not pessimistic about this. I actually think there is progress being made. It is more acceptable to talk about it. And it does help to have the person at the top be encouraged in the conversation and be more open and personally vulnerable about it. And there's some CEOs that are doing that. And being able to have the conversation is a huge part of the first step. And there are a whole lot of other things that need to happen, but the very first step has to be, you know, the conversation that says this is a legitimate health issue and we're going to do something about it. How do you answer the tough question that comes after, which might be, well, what happens if you become unavailable? What happens like you had to go to the hospital? You couldn't make good decisions for two weeks. Like what happens? It's called sick leave. I mean, if you have a, <laughs> or, or family leave, if you have a baby, you don't people don't say, oh, you shouldn't have babies because you're going to be unavailable. Although sometimes that's implied to leaders. It is implied, although increasingly completely unacceptable. And, in, you know, in an environment where we need every talented person we have to be part of our workforce, you know, most capable executives are not behaving that way. And you need vacations. You need time away. Something's going to happen in your physical health. Something could happen to a family member. You're going to have a child or something's going to happen to your parent. And so, you know, Businesses are organized, most of them, to be able to withstand some people being away for a time period. And if they're not, that's a problem of the business. Hey, you, I'm Andrew Seaman. Do you want a new job or do you want to move forward in your career? Well, you should listen to my weekly show called Get Hired with Andrew Seaman. We talk about it all and it's waiting for you. Yes, you, wherever you get your podcasts. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. More to-dos, less time, and so many tools to keep track of. Doing business can be hard, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You just need HubSpot. 
Their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. You're an expert in public-private partnerships and public policy and also you know a lot about business. What's the prescription here? I, I feel like awareness is at a peak. I think we're all aware that we're in a mental health crisis in this country. What comes next to improve access and reduce stigma? Well, while awareness is up, I think stigma is still way too high. And so part of it just has to be role modeling and encouraging the conversation because the first thing that has to happen is we have to acknowledge and recognize its pervasiveness and address it earlier. That to me is really, really important. And then we have to have the capacity to deal with it. That includes adequate insurance and health coverage, which is not anywhere where it needs to be, but important. But even if you had that, we're so under capacity to deal with this. You know, yeah. I tell business groups when I say, if you don't think we have a problem, call up your EAP line and say you have an issue and see what kind of response you get. You know, they're likely to say, um, well, if we, if they know what you're talking about, they'll say, well, we can get you to see someone in six weeks. Yep. And that's just not helpful. You know, you break your leg, they don't say, well, we'll treat it in six weeks. You just, you have to have more immediate response. And so, we are, at least as I'm told, at least 200,000 therapists short today for currently diagnosed cases, and we're in no danger of changing that. And so we have to have different ways to address this in terms of our healthcare system. We have to have more of the activity happen and support happen in ways that aren't the way I did it in an emergency room. That's just not scalable. We have to have more peer activity so people are talking to each other and acknowledging and helping you know all those things need to be part of it i'm sure there are medical and pharmaceutical interventions that are part of the equation that's not where i go or have any expertise i'm much more cognizant of and able to talk about the human and, and systemic parts of this which to me are solvable um, but it's going to take some new ways of addressing it and the first of those is, is to be able in our settings where we spend most of our life either in in a work setting or in a family friend setting to be supportive and helpful and understanding and help people get help when they need it are you seeing new business models and new approaches evolve i am you know one of the things that happen in addition to having a lot of people reach out to tell me their stories is, you know, I must have had several dozen entrepreneurs who are trying to do something to try and address this, call me or send me an email or LinkedIn saying, can I tell you what I'm trying to do? You know, a reasonable portion of those were psychedelics or other pharmaceutical interventions, which I just said, I'm not, I'm not going there just because that's not what I, I know anything about or interested in, not that they couldn't work, but that's not what I'm interested in. And then a, a large number of other ones were kind of the latest app to try and mm -hmm. deal with this. And again, maybe helpful for some, but it didn't feel like a, you know, a real innovation that was going to change something. And then there were some, and one of which I personally involved with that were much more about trying to address that supply problem of our medical system's capacity. And I think there are a number of ways that that can be done, particularly trying to 
increase the number of qualified professionals. I don't necessarily need to be psychiatrists or psychologists and got a PhD to do this, but to have earlier stage support that allow us to much more dramatically and rapidly increase the response, including peer counseling and things like that. So I do think there's opportunities. And now that our partly because of COVID, but not totally because of that, our reimbursement system for both public and private insurance does treat remote interventions with the same reimbursement that does for in-person. I think that's got a lot of potential. I mean, I yeah. the doctors treated me outside of the being in the hospital. I've never met in person. It's all been remote. And that is despite the fact that his office is about 15 miles from where I live. But it's all great. I mean, I tried one time when I was by his office to stop by, but he wasn't there just to say hi. But we've had, <laughs> you know, two years of interaction with no in-person. That's wild. I know. I it, it, People always joke about, like, what happens if you see your therapist at the mall or at the movie theater, you know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I think it'd be nice. You know, I have to say that personally, I just think we need to pay mental health professionals better. I wanted to be a clinical social worker. I did not finish my degree because it was going to cost me $75,000 a year. And my salary for the first five or six years, at least out of social work school, was going to be like 40 grand. And I just, I couldn't do that. And I think that's true for a lot of our caring professions. We, we don't value caring professions enough. No, I think that's true in our healthcare system more broadly, you know, to expect that people are going to pay for their own education, do the time that you need to be in the field all on their own dime before they get paid is just ridiculous. It so is. we need to break that more broadly. Yeah. So Lenny, what's next for you? How are you a different leader after this experience? So I would not have had conversation around mental health or certainly anything that was even remotely informed when I had a, any leadership role before it just wasn't on my agenda. Mm. And now I certainly would be more attentive and open to it. Now, in retrospect, I recognize that in part, I did a lot of mentoring and still do for people. And it may not have been characterized as that, and I, at least in my mind, because I didn't recognize it. But that's part of what being a good mentor is as well, is trying to help people through challenging times. And if they need more support, make sure they are comfortable and have access and, and are encouraged to get that help. But I would do what I'm encouraging business groups and leaders that I speak to to do is to, you know, be open and have this part of your leadership approach so that your people feel like this is something that they can openly talk about. Mm. And it's going to be impossible to do that if the person at the top leading the team or the organization is stone cold and doesn't, mm. doesn't encourage it. I mean, it really does take role modeling. And so that would be certainly something I would, I am doing in individually and would encourage others to do. And then I, I, you know, I'm on the margin since I'm not in major leadership roles right now. I am in, in other settings, including personal investing, trying to help encourage the innovations necessary to make sure that we really do address this coverage and capacity question because it's endemic and we're not intervening at the pace and scale that we need to to really address it, even if we're prepared to talk about it. Totally. My last question for you is about empathy. 
There's some data that show that people who have been through major depressions have stronger empathy. I'm curious how you feel about empathy as a leadership skill and if if you've seen your empathy change. Definitely for sensitivity and responsiveness to issues around mental health. More generally, I was generally perceived as someone who was a pretty empathetic leader to begin with. I had the misfortune of being known for being pretty good at firing people. And so I got to do that a lot. And, you know, there are good ways to do that and bad ways to do that. So I uh, learned how to do it in a way which was empathetic to the person receiving it. But I think it's definitely, you know, anytime something happens to you that kind of completely sets you on your heels, it helps make you appreciate and be understanding for others who have had similar experiences. So that is absolutely true. Next, I'm joined by Darshan Patel. He's a listener and international business leader who reached out to me on LinkedIn because the show spoke to him. And he in particular wanted to reach our audience in India, where mental health is still stigmatized, he thinks. I've been from a modestly educated family. And then I have realized that I have bipolar disorder at age of 37. Mm. My family got quite surprised, so much of concern that, you know, how to handle this. Even though I was highly educated, working in excellent company like TCS, I have worked with IBM before, but my family was not able to manage it or handle it properly, in particular, my parents. Mm. My wife came to the terms, but I have seen in these 30 years of my being on earth, I have damaged the relationship with many. So many people have suffered because of me, including my in-laws, my parents, my sister, my wife, my daughter, not directly physically impacted, but emotionally. They were so much emotionally disturbed. So I was feeling so much pain that how come being such a nice person during my high phases, that is many phases, I used to disturb them. And the same pain, I do not want to be repeated in many families just because of ignorance. Mm -hmm. So I gathered the courage after I had a proper medication. Even then also, it took five good years for me to open my mouth and come and say that, okay, if I can manage, anyone can manage. So you were 37. What led you to seek a diagnosis at that point? So this was a cyclic uh, thing which was happening at every three years when a human-centric calamity used to come. I used to resign from my job and I deploy myself into humanitarian services or something or another where I get a limelight, Mm. where people appreciate my efforts toward humanity, but at cost of my family, at cost of my finances. So I spent everything which is present with me, even I enter into deep debt of credit card. Up to that level, I spend money. So my one of the friends used to watch me and he has advised me a couple of times that Darshan, you are doing something bad. But I used to tell him that you are feeling jealous of me. His wife is a doctor. Mm-hmm. She has suggested to have a psychological psychiatrist advice. Uh, I have taken that also, but then also I was not following any of suggestions. 
What did you realize once you had gotten proper treatment for your bipolar? I was on a very high level of bipolar, which cannot be treated by simple medicine. First uh, two months, that is 60 days even, I was not able to recall anyone. I used to tell every lady my sister's name and every gentleman with my friend's name. <laughs> that was my situation, which my wife is telling me that those were 60 days because I have gone through an extreme treatment called ECT. Yeah. Electroconvulsive therapy. Yes. And that has made me to forget everything. It was like a reset, hard reset of a smartphone. <laughs> Did your memory come back after a while? Yes. After that, uh, initially, I started recalling my professional background. Post 60 days, 30 days it took for me to start working. And gradually, until that time also, he was, I was not remembering all the names of people around me. But as I used to keep and meet some person, I used to remember him. But many of the incidences which has happened in my life, even right now also, I'm not able to remember them. Wow. Let's talk a little bit about your career. Mm -hmm. What did you go to school for? What did you train as? And what do you do now? So I have attended a 12th standard with science subject, mm -hmm. that is maths, science, and biology. I was aiming to become a doctor because I was having that passion, but I have fallen short of certain percentages. So mm -hmm. uh, the first choice which I have got at that time was engineering. So I became electronics engineer. And post that, straight away joined a corporation called Mafatlal Industry, that is a textile manufacturer. And from that, my journey has started in ERP, that is Enterprise Resource Planning, mm -hmm. SAP. I have worked with very famous companies, including IBM, TCS, and right now I'm working for a company uh, from India that is called Incture as a country head for Mexico. Wow. And you've worked all over the world, right? Yes, I've worked uh, almost in 20 countries, <laughs> starting from Australia in the east to Mexico in the west. I have worked in Hong Kong, Japan, Singapore, China, East Africa, most of the nations. And uh, Other than Europe, I have worked almost in all the continents. Wow. Do you think that your bipolar has anything to do with your desire for newness and literal changes of scenery? Yes, I think bipolar makes me very close to nature. Mm. It gives me so much of uh, create. It, it's like a dragon, which allows me to go out into the nature, which allows me to do something or take risks, which other persons are not thinking even of uh, doing it. Even right now, if you can see, I am doing lot many activities, which a common man even cannot able to think that uh, how come Darshan is able to do so many things in parallel. You know, it's interesting to me that you work in, in what seems to me a pretty traditional industry, probably full of a lot of engineers, and you're so very open about your bipolar. Mm -hmm. Has anyone ever responded to it with surprise or shock? My previous bosses, like when I have came back from treatment, they have taken me so normal that, yes, like majority of us are facing psychological issues, 
your was on a little higher seniority but it's okay like as long as the good thing was i was the high performer mm. but i think in certain cases it may not be the case so the person has to disclose his uh, or her psychological situation based on the performance based on the family support i was lucky enough to have both my performance was never down i was never feeling uh, so much depressed mm-hmm. and second thing uh, I, i was having a great support from my wife mm. and i do have support like every day she is supporting me she has gone through a systematic psychological counseling as if she is also a patient wow why did she choose to do that do you think because she has seen that our happiness depends on not only on my well-being but her understanding also mm. what would you say to someone a wife a husband a father a mother who is dealing with the diagnosis of their loved one with a serious mental illness such as bipolar 1 and just feels sort of hopeless or sort of like oh wow this is way harder than anything i'd ever planned for this question brings or makes me emotional because i have seen myself the worst kind of a human being who used to ill treat his own loved ones mm. by crying sometime by getting angry by playing emotional cards by arguing so i have seen myself hurting my loved ones making them cry and that is the highest of the situation a person having bipolar creates in the home if this keeps on repeating the family gets fed up of him enough of him now this situation can be stopped by having a value system by having somebody in the life even a, a counseling from capable doctor and empathy mm. so all this combination is required only advices cannot work how about you and your empathy has your empathy evolved over the years yes indeed uh, my empathy not only for the people with bipolar disorder but i now respect people and their choices their preferences their limitation and their strength even at employee level so my weakness has helped me to be an ideal boss who appreciates the people and people also likes to be with me so uh, empathy is the biggest factor which makes people love you makes people to be with you what do you see happening you know i i will say that i have a very large audience in india mm-hmm. for my podcast mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i often get invited to speak in india so from my perspective there's something about my message and your message i'm sure that is resonating in that country do you think discussions about mental health are evolving there yes indeed discussion about mental health is evolving mm. in the educated community indeed but still it's a taboo in a larger part where the education is below certain limit so at that stage the parents because they are still of 60 or 70 years old and they do not have enough education so they feel like even though they are who is an it industry or who is well educated and having a psychological problem maybe because of covid maybe because of the family structure mm-hmm. which has drastically changed over the years 
so that is creating a huge disconnect emotional imbalance and the current change in the family structure from many siblings to just one kid based equation in india these psychological matters are becoming quite complex hmm. however it has been addressed it needs much more attention focus specifically in india in developed nation people go on their own to the doctor here professionals like you and me mm-hmm. needs to enable them guide them and show them by an example that there is nothing wrong guys let's come out let's discuss on an open forum and let's come out of this taboo for our own as well as for others well being last question mm-hmm. do you feel that you have been able to repair some of the relationships that were damaged when you were untreated for your bipolar yes indeed the first is acceptance till i was not accepting my relationship was a bumpy ride but the moment i have started accepting i have started apologizing also and people have started forgiving me that's it for today our show is produced and edited by mary do our assistant producer and sound engineer is nick krinko many thanks to the linkedin presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the anxious achiever world. Thanks for listening. 